to the Keys 107, opening the doors to endless possibilities in the pursuit of love, peace, and happiness with your host, Rafika and Brother James. Welcome to the Keys 107. We thank you so very much for your time. You know, sometimes we get on these techno- on this technology and we just ready to rock and roll and sometimes the buttons just don't perform. But we are here. We are excited. We have another edition of Business and Finances with Business and Financial Consultant Haru Niket. Haru is here on the line. He's ready to talk about 10 indispensable rules for creating wealth in the new economy. And some of you might be wondering, well, or saying to yourself, well, just what are the rules? And did we have rules? And if we have rules, just what are the rules? Well, Peru is here. We're going to go to the healthy tip of the day in a quick moment just to have some brief announcements to you. Those of you who have been calling and anxiously awaiting information about the Live Your Best Life health retreat coming up in December in Grenada. We are still putting those packages together, so just hold tight and keep listening to the Keys 107. We will happily give you that information ASAP. I'm your host, Rafika. My co-host, Brother James, will be on the line shortly. And just remember, if you are ready to call in, the number is or if you want the number to call in, it's 213-943-3618. That's 213-943-3618. You can check us out on Facebook. We're in the chat room. Haru's uh, Facebook is, is live. Yes, I'm ready. Okay, we're going, we're going right to the healthy tip of the day. The Healthy Tip of the Day. The healthy tip of the day is to schedule rest periods in your day just as you would for other appointments. Leaving time in your schedule for rest instead of activity is like hitting a reset button for your mind and body. A great way to do this is to take 15 minutes out of your day just to sit and do nothing. Taking time to pause can improve your mood and help you feel more refreshed and focused. Today's healthy tip of the day has been brought to you by wellness expert Medea Allen. I invite you to learn more about me and my services at www.organicsoulchef.com. And we'd like to thank Medea Allen for offering those healthy tips for the day. She always brings it in a very special way. And while I have a moment before everybody's ready to get started, I want to remind you to go get your pen and your paper. You may need two sheets of paper for tonight because we've got ten indispensable rules for creating wealth in the new economy. 
And I think uh, Heru is going to come on and talk a little bit about just what he means by the new economy as opposed to the old economy. And we've got some new listeners on the line tonight. We've got Shanice um, from the Boogie Down Bronx on the line. We've got uh, Mecca on the line, I mean, listening in from the Boogie Down Bronx. So welcome all of our Bronx listeners. And, again, thank you for your time and thank you for listening to the Keys 107. As we always try to present information, tips, and strategies, to help you open doors to endless possibilities. And I think I heard my illustrious co-host giving me the signal that he's live and he's ready to talk. Is that correct? That is correct. I figured thank you, Rafika, (laughs) uh, for holding it down this evening. But I want to say to you that although we are dealing with the financial key and it is extremely important in this day and time that we know what to do with our money, how to make our money. I think that with all the seven keys that we um, deal with, um, it's arguable that there is a hierarchy of keys, and the first key is that spiritual key. And I just want to touch on that a bit. This past week, we who belong to the Nation of Islam, or members, have gotten such a spiritual burst of, of, of love and energy and in divine instructions that, you know, um, we want to be able to keep that momentum going and follow through with those instructions. And as per it, it deals with uh, finances, finances, I believe that if we all pick up Message to Black Man and read page 174 and read on page 194 dealing with the economic blueprint, if we pick up the uh, Torchlight of America and the uh, national agenda, we would be so in tune to the overall goals and, and, and desires that our messenger had for us to build a nation. And if you continue listening to the Keys 107, as we bring to you uh, those experts that will help us fine-tune our skill sets so that we can be successful I just want to say one last thing before we move forward into our program, that the spirit of Savior's Day has to continue in each and every one of us. It was so good to see people in the airport, in the hotel lobbies, at the Joe Louis Arena, at in the Cobo Center, many asking about our key, the Keys 107 and giving us encouragement so Rafiki and I can continue on with this. But I want to say this, although we have believers from all over the country, there also are believers in the in, in the 7th region, which we call the 7th region, which is Puerto Rico. It's it's, it's um, our brothers down in, in Haiti. Sapuase to you brothers and sisters there. Those in, in Trinidad, peace and love. Thank you for listening to the Keys 107. Thank you, the U.K., Brother Hillary and all of your wonderful believers, thank you for listening in London and Paris. Thank you for listening uh, in, uh, um, in in South Africa. Sarbona to you believers. Thank you for listening in Ghana. These are our brothers and sisters in the struggle, and they are supporting us, and they are part of our listening audience. We're not a local station. We're not even a national station. We're an international station, and I thank God for this ability to reach out and touch them with our programming, and we 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 are honored 
and understand that the airwaves are sacred. We're going to continue on in this mission. So this is why we bring on brothers like Haru Naket to help us to give you quality substance so that you can move on with your program. So thank you, Rafika. I know I was a little long-winded today, but I just wanted to make sure that we know that there's so much love out there that is coming our way that we let everybody know that it's happening all over the planet, and we need to be able to embrace that brotherhood and that love and, and, and cherish it. So with that being said, I'll turn it back over to you, and we can move our program further. Haru, are you there? Yes, I am. Well, welcome. Welcome back to the Keys 107, Haru. We missed you last week. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad to be back. Good, good. So I I know that um, you have got some gems to drop today. And, I I mean, when you sent over your topic and you you said indispensable rules, I said, whoa, that's hot. I got my pen in my paper. I hope everybody has their pen in their paper. If you want to call in 213-943-3618, 213-943-3618, don't forget to press the number one on your keypad to let Haru and me and Brother James know <clears throat> that you want to talk. So, Haru, let's let's get started. I'm ready. All right. Well, before and, I get into the, to the rules, I think it's important that we um, – begin to understand what the old rules were and really, you know, why things are affected or how things are affected. So what creates these rules? And I think a lot of times we're kind of out of touch with the fact that, um, you know, the economy or the way things are done is really limited by the technology, uh, government regulations, communication, transportation, um, you know, the attitudes and beliefs of, of people of a time. So, you know, we have to understand that, you know, we have to look at the post-Depression era strategies, and then we have to look at the Great Recession era, and then we have to look post-Great Recession to really understand where we are now. So if we go back, you know, a lot of things that occurred were somewhat knee-jerk reactions to the um, Great Depression and also what was happening globally in, in, in the world that affected the U.S. So when we, we look at um, coming out of the Great Depression, you know, one of the things that sparked the U.S. economy was the fact that the rest of the world was decimated by World War II. And so the United States became the leading um, manufacturer and exporter to the world, which allowed us really to to grow and prosper. But a lot of things came out of that, too. Um, You know, we began to put a heavy emphasis on education, particularly high school and then eventually college education. Uh, We began to look at the strength of unions and things like that to create long-term employment, you began to see reform on in businesses where businesses uh, began to offer benefits and retirement packages. You know, people were encouraged when the FDIC came about to put money back in the bank. People were encouraged, especially at the end of World War II when they had got the GI bills to, to start purchasing homes. You know, Social Security was also an offspring of the Great Recession, I mean, of the, yeah, the uh, Depression. And so you began to see all these things come together and the idea was about slow growth through structured investment. And, you know, that was the message. If you just put a little bit away over a long period of time in a structured investment, um, you know, by the time you're, you're ready to retire, which was 62, and the average person only lived to be 65, then you'd have a comfortable three years before you die. And, you know, even if you chose to go into business, 
you were limited by those things. And so it was often a very small local business, um, which was very limited. And so we moved to a, a new era, and we moved out of the industrial age. We moved out of, you know, that type of, of society, and we're moving into a global world that's high tech. So when we begin to look at some of the things that took us out of that era, one thing that people don't realize is that global things affect local things. And when the Berlin Wall fell and you saw the collapse of the Soviet Union, you saw all these countries suddenly emerge that were capitalist, and they began to have uh, economies that uh, produced people who were saving. And savings means that banks need to put money somewhere. So you started seeing this global investing. And, you know, you started seeing uh, changes in, in technology, which allowed for cheap and easy communication, cheap and easy transportation. Um, we have to look at things that, that also affected the tech bubble in 1999, believe it or not, changed the world dramatically because, you know, people had paid a lot of money to lay the infrastructure uh, when you talk about fiber optic cables around the world. And when the, the tech bubble collapsed, you know, other countries were able to grab up bandwidth inexpensively. So when you saw the growth of India, you know, come about um, because of that. And you started seeing all these, these changes because of innovations in transportation, communication, technology. Um, and so that began to affect the global economy. And then when we had the, the Great Recession, you saw the actual acceleration of the obsolescence of businesses that were teeter-tottering on the edge. On the edge. And so you saw all these disruptive technologies come about, and it changed the world. And so a lot of things that we did before are obsolete. And so you need to begin to abandon that way of thinking. You can't think like an industrial age economy. You can't think like an economy that was based on manufacturing. You can't think like an economy that was based locally. You can't think of an economy that had structured uh, things for you to get into. That's the old way of thinking. And if you continue to do those things, um, you're going to fail. You know, so, uh, you know, when we look at college education, college education is, is pretty much obsolete the moment you get your degree and walk out the door. Um, when we look at the idea of long-term employment, there's really no such thing as long-term employment because businesses don't even last that long anymore. Um, you know, they're quickly eliminating benefits, retirement packages, all those things that we thought about before about growing wealth you know, are really obsolete ideas. And, you know, the, the scary thing is we're living in a time where we're seeing the greatest transfer of wealth in world history. And that wealth, unfortunately, is being transferred to, you know, they say the 10%, but it's really the 1% of the, or the 10% of the 10%, which means it's the upper 1% that's really getting all of the wealth. And there's a reason they're getting the wealth is because they understand the new rules. And until you begin to accept and understand the new rules, then you'll be on the losing side of this thing until you have nothing left. So I guess that brings me to rule number one. And rule number one, I think, is, is so critical and it's really based upon that foundation I just, you know, gave you. You have to abandon the idea of financial security and seek financial freedom instead. Let me repeat that because that's important. You have to abandon the concept of financial security and seek financial freedom instead. So one of the things you know, that I, I kind of pointed out is financial security is really a myth. Financial security is the belief that you can create this stability and consistency by following that old script that we talked about, good education, long-term employment, benefits, and so forth. So you, you think you can follow that script 
and believe you can stay on a job until retirement that will pay you a wage, a job that will pay you a wage that gives you a decent lifestyle and enough to save for a rainy day and a retirement fund that will carry you through your golden years. And unfortunately, that's not a reality. So you, know, you, can, you can search for financial security, but you won't find it. So what is this financial freedom thing? Financial freedom, and it's funny because people think of this concept of freedom as being intangible. But when we talk about financial freedom, it's absolutely tangible, which means that it's measurable, which means that it's achievable. So financial freedom is, is very uh, subjective in the sense that it's based upon a lifestyle that you want to live. So once you understand the lifestyle that you want to live and you can put a dollar value to it, because if you can't see the lifestyle you want to live, you're in trouble anyway. See, most people live a lifestyle based upon what they have instead of creating a lifestyle based upon what they can get. So in other words, you know, if you're on a job and it only pays a certain amount, then you tailor your lifestyle based upon the, the income that you have. When you look at it the other way around, this is the lifestyle that I want. This is the type of income that it will take to support this lifestyle. Then the only things I will do are things that will allow me to achieve that lifestyle. So financial freedom means that money that you get from passive income sources, and when I say passive income sources, I mean not derived from uh, trading hours for, or, or labor for money, meaning that not earned income, not from a job, meaning that you get income derived from rental income, dividends, royalty, or from a business in which you're not the primary worker. So when you, your passive in, uh, income sources give you enough income to meet your expenses, then you become financially free. Now, the good thing about financial freedom is there's no retirement from passive income, which means that into your golden years, you're continuing to make money. Now, of course, we have to understand that in the economy that we live in, you will never be able to find one passive income source that will last your lifetime. You have to constantly you know, revise and, and change that source and modify it as the world and the markets change. But it doesn't require you to exchange labor. It doesn't ex it require you to exchange your time you know, for that type of income. So we have to get away from that idea of exchanging labor because we're living longer. And if you're living longer, that means you'll be forced to work into your 70s and 80s if you go for the old model. And we can't, you know, it's just not realistic that we'll be able to be productive and find, you know, good employment in our 70s and 80s. And so we have to begin to make that shift now towards financial freedom as opposed to financial security. So that was our rule number one. Rule number two, which is really important, means uh, which is uh, you have to embrace the system and use it to your advantage. Now, one of the most difficult things for people to do is accept this, the financial system that we have and use it to, to their advantage. When you understand the system, and I think we're so busy trying to beat the system because we don't really understand it and it seems insurmountable and it just seems daunting and it just seems overwhelming, when you begin to understand the system, then you begin to use it to your advantage. So let me give you an example. We understand that large corporations and Wall Street have influenced, influenced lawmakers to create tax laws that are in their favor. However, those same laws are not exclusive to their benefit, meaning anybody can benefit from the same rules. And I'll give you an example. Corporate taxes, capital gains taxes can be utilized by everyone. And, and why is that important? 
a corporation has the same rights and privileges that any individual has, meaning that it can own property, it can borrow money, it can lend money, it can get a job, it can own another business, it can do anything that you can do as an individual. But corporate taxes, when you look at the, the structure, the, the income tax, federal income tax on earned income for an individual, the highest rate is 39%. For a corporation, on the, the first $50,000 net, not gross, that means after you've paid off all your expenses, it's only 20, uh, 15%. So if that's only 15%, if we do some simple math, you can earn $50,000 on your job and pay 39% taxes, and I can earn 50000 in my corporation and pay 15% taxes. So there's a big disparity there. Now, how, do, how would that benefit somebody? I had a student of mine who, um, very, very intelligent um, young lady, but she did. She went to her, her job, and she created a corporation, and she asked if her, her business would actually let her go and hire her corporation. She did HR work. They, would ha- they were happy to do so because when they let her go, they didn't have to pay into Social Security. They didn't have to pay her benefits. They didn't have to pay into her retirement. They didn't have to give her health care and all these things. So they saved a tremendous amount of money and were actually able to increase the amount of money that they paid to her or to her corporation. She went home. She asked her landlord if she could release herself from the lease and have a corporation uh, be on the lease. The landlord didn't care because the landlord was still getting his money. But what she did was in, in her corporate bylaws, she put that her corporation provides housing for all of its employees. So the rent was actually 100% deductible for her as, a, as an expense for her corporation, which means her rent was tax deductible. She went to her uh, – she got a car leased in the corporation thing, which meant her transportation now was 100% deductible. And this went on and on and on, and she was able to take the same job, the same amount of income, and be able to save tremendously and have all these tax benefits. Um, so we have to begin to look at that. I and mean, even when we look at capital gains tax, which means money that we get from uh, stocks, mutual funds, bonds, rental income, things like that, the, the, the capital gains tax is basically about 20%. So why would you earn all this money and give it away in taxes? The average person gives away over 50% of their income in taxes. That's ridiculous when you can restructure yourself based upon the rules. Anybody can do that. Um, when we look at other things like taking advantage of intellectual property rights, intellectual property rights is the only time in America where it's legal to have a monopoly. Now think about that. When you have intellectual property rights, patents, um, trademarks, um, copyrights, you're the only one that is allowed to sell that product or, or service. You're the only one. That gives you exclusive opportunity to profit on something where nobody else has the ability to profit from that. And then when we look at the flip side of that, things that are in the public domain, that means that the copyright has expired. So when you look at works of literature, art, um, music, where the copyright has expired, it gives you a, a beautiful opportunity to take advantage of those things. Somebody else did the work already, and you can take it in its whole form and sell it, resell it yourself without having to pay anybody any royalties, or you can modify and copyright that version yourself and not have to, uh, and nobody else can use your version of it. So, you know, we, we need to begin to look at the way the system is designed and not look at how we're excluded from it, but how we can include ourselves in it. The same with, with trade policies. The trade policies have made it easy, easier for 
companies to do business overseas. But that means you can do business overseas. That means you're not limited anymore to your local area. That means you have the ability to get things manufactured inexpensively. That means you have the ability to get financing inexpensively from overseas. That means you have the ability to tap into a global pool of resources that you didn't have access to before. And with technology, it's easier than ever. It's not even like you have to make a trip overseas. Most things you can do online. And so we need to begin to understand, you know, how the system really works. You know, take a look at what the rules are. Take a look at what major corporations in Wall Street are taking advantage of and see how we can take advantage of those exact same things so that we can prosper. And until we begin to embrace the system and understand the system, we are going to continue to lose. You're not going to fight the system and win. And so I'm not saying you shouldn't, you shouldn't be uh, politically active in trying to get certain things changed, but in the meantime, understand the rules and use them to your advantage. So let's go to rule number three. Number three is interesting, and, and sometimes people misunderstand when I say this because it sounds, it's an oxymoron. It's commit to non-commitment. And what that means is we have to accept that we live in a, a very volatile and transitory world. So in the past, you know, the focus used to be on building this, this strong foundation for slow growth and continuity. You know, we wanted to build something that, you know, we knew it wouldn't profit necessarily right away, but over the long term, you know, it would give us steady growth and we'll be okay. And what I'm saying today is that we shouldn't be thinking long term. We shouldn't be committed, you know, to this to something and waiting for this slow growth because the world doesn't work that way anymore. Everything is, is so much faster, faster in terms of growth, but faster in, in terms of decline as well. So this new economy requires that you not get emotionally attached to any income source, whether it's your job, whether it's a piece of property, whether it's a business or an investment. You can no longer have that emotional attachment that makes you hang on far too long. So in the past, you know, you had this commitment, whether it was emotional or whatever, nostalgia or whatever, you would get stuck on this thing. And if you get stuck on it today, it will actually drag you down and, and deplete you of everything you have. Today's market demands that you rapidly adjust. Today's market demands that um, you reassess and reevaluate constantly, that you remain nimble and that you are, are at any moment ready to abandon what it was completely. Sometimes you have to strategically abandon, just walk away and cut your losses. Sometimes it requires you to, to make a, a pivot in a different direction because the world has shifted and, and, and it requires that. And sometimes it requires you to, you can stay the course, but you have to constantly innovate. And so, you can't be stuck on anything, especially if it's an emotional attachment. So when I say commit to non-commitment, that should be your model. You know, I, I, I'm doing this thing, but I'm just going to ride it until the wheels fall off, and I'm going to keep moving. So those, those type of things are, are, you know, really, really important, um, which kind of moves us to uh, rule number four. Mm-hmm. And rule number four is, and this is one I, I think is so important today uh, because things are moving so fast. You know, there was a time when people would say, you know, you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, you know, I'm a self-made man or a self-made woman, you know, and the way things are moving today, it's almost impossible to be able to do things on your own. So num- rule number four is use the power of collective thought, work, and resources, basically collaboration. And that comes in a lot of different forms. Um, it comes in the form of mind sharing. 
which is using the ideas of many people. So, you know, it was interesting. There was a, a TED Talk one time where a guy brought out, actually brought out a cow. And what he did was he asked the audience, you know, how much they thought the cow weighed. And when he did an average of what the people came up with, it basically was, was what the cow weighed. And so you'd be amazed at how powerful a collective mind is as opposed to an individual mind. And, you know, we have the ability to mind share because most of us are on social media. You know, social media can be used as a powerful tool um, if you understand what you're using it for. And so to get, you know, it's interesting. I, I teach a, a financial class, and one of my students asked me she, the other day, she said, you know, um, I, I used to be able to find these resources online where people did market research for you, and I can't really find many of them anymore. And what I explained to her is that many of the new technologies actually made them obsolete because you can get that information for free and in real time now. You know Hmm. pretty much right away when you put a post up on Facebook or a post on Twitter whether people are gravitating to it because they'll let you know. They'll give you feedback verbally. They'll give you feedback in the form of likes. You know, and now you got all these other little uh, icons, the little things you can click on too. They got love and funny faces and everything. But you can actually get a, a, a good sense of what your demographic is into by just tapping into, you know, social media, and it's free. Um, and not only that, if you have a, a page on there, it has these analytics. It tells you all the demographics. Of, of the people who are looking at your page. It'll tell you their age. It'll tell you that where they're at. It'll tell you all kind of information for free. Um, so there's, there's no reason that we don't tap into those type of things. You know, um, we all know about crowdfunding now. You know, that's, that's a big thing. But crowdfunding has expanded dramatically. It used to be crowdfunding was just, you know, trying to get donations on Indiegogo or Kickstarter. But then you started seeing that uh, crowdfunding – kind of spilled over to peer lending where you have things like Kiva and Prosper and um, Lending Club where you can take your old um, credit cards and, and refinance it through, you know, the, these crowdfunding sources. Um, they have crowdfunding now even for real estate um, where they, they will actually finance up into the millions of dollars for projects. And you have these people just, you know, putting money into this. So you have all these opportunities. You have open sourcing Open sourcing is amazing. You can develop uh, software technology, and, and people from around the world will throw ideas into it, and you can build this very robust, you know, software from it. Um, but one of the other things that, you know, has changed in this economy, which is, is part of that, you know, use of the, the, the collective work and resources and so forth, if we, we have moved into what they call a sharing economy. And, you know, it's very interesting that you can see – people uh, sharing rides. They have, you, if you need a lift somewhere, they have actually a company called Lyft, uh, L-Y-F-T, where if you need a ride and somebody's going your way, you can actually share a ride with people, and it's cheaper than taking a cab. Um, you have, you know, in the sharing economy where people are like Airbnb, where you can take time, you can share a couch, you know, share an apartment. Um, you have the, all these, these opportunities you know, where people have come together, where people will answer questions for you, uh, like on Quora, um, you have just all these collective minds and these collective resources and these collective tools. They have websites now where you can borrow, literally borrow anything. 
You can borrow a, a, a soccer ball if you need to borrow a soccer ball. You know, so they have all these new resources that, that didn't exist before. You know, so we live in this amazing time where, you know, not only is it available, but it's necessary to stay ahead of the game because if other people are collaborating, they're ex- actually accelerating their own growth. They're accelerating mm. and, you know, making their wealth grow exponentially because they've collaborated. And if you fail to collaborate, you're in trouble because now you have the world against you. Wow. So it's, um, yeah. Brother Haru, yeah. I was thinking with this collective thought, you know, work and resources, this collaboration, when we think of that in our community, I think the greatest imp- impediment is the fact that we do not trust one another enough to pool our resources together to do exactly what you said, you know, use our thoughts. We're thinking that someone is always going to rob us of our creativity or our ideas. We think that someone's going to rob us of our little pennies and dimes, you know, our little uh, few resources that we may have, someone is going to abuse it. So in order for this really to be effective, we have to um, uh, somehow eradicate uh, the lack of trust and I believe the best way to go about it is self-love. And once we get that going, then we actually, rule number four will be in full effect, and I would, I would think that we would see a great deal of progress in terms of our, developing, uh, our economic development in our community. Well, I think in, until, until that happens, and, 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 you know, not to be a pessimist, if it never happens, then it takes us back to rule number two, which is embrace the system and use it to your advantage. You know, yes. if you if you protect your intellectual property through copyright, trademark, patent, um, mm-hmm. no one can steal your stuff without recourse. You know, one of, one right. of the things that we have to understand about, you know, the system, the system is, is backed by the judicial system. The, the economic system is backed by the judicial system, meaning that, you have the ability to go to court and enforce a contract. You have a, an ability to go to court and enforce property rights. You have the ability mm-hmm. to go to court to enforce intellectual property rights. And so, you know, where where there is not necessarily, and I don't think it's good to do business based on love because love changes. You know, <laughs> somebody will love you one minute and, and, you know, how things go. Relationships turn sour. So you, you always right. have to protect yourself properly, you know, anyway. Um, and things, mm-hmm. and that's one of the things that we need to, to to begin to embrace too is putting things on paper so that expectations are clear before money mm-hmm. is or lost. You know, right, and right, right. we got to understand too that our memories are dynamic. You know, I, I know mm-hmm. for myself, you know, we could have a discussion today about what it is, and then you ask me six months down the road, and I can't remember exactly what that conversation was, and we can both mm-hmm. swear that the conversation was something totally different, but the best way to do it is to really put that down on paper and make sure that everybody's clear on the expectations and, and the outcomes, you know, so that goes back again to rule number two, you know, we can't, we can't get past that. And then the other thing is, you know, we, we can't limit ourselves just to the community um, that we're, we're in, you know, we have to begin to think global and, and whether that's, you know, when I say global, that means every, every country every type of people has something to contribute that we can use now we can use the what we create to empower our community but we can't limit ourselves to the resources that we have in our community we can't limit ourselves to the 
even the intellectual minds that we have in the community. We want to get the best of the globe and be able to utilize, utilize that to empower the community. So, you know, when we have the ability now to be able to do that, you know, to be able to reach somebody, you know, in Africa, reach somebody in India, reach somebody in China, reach somebody, you know, anywhere in the world who can contribute the best of what they have, and we can adapt that or adopt that, um, you know, to what we're doing, I think it makes us even more powerful. You know, one of the... Well, the I'm sorry, no, I was going to say, say one of the you're 100% right. You know, we, we begin to get stagnant, right? If, if, we, if, we, if we don't reach outside of what we've already created, then we become stagnant. And so some of the best ideas um, for, of innovation might come from outside of our community, but we bring that to the community to make the community more powerful. Uh, uh, I so agree I, with you with that. Yeah. Because we have Skype and we have all these other technology innovations to, to communicate, we don't necessarily have to be in the same room with someone to do business or the same space. Um, right. So um, physical barriers have been broken down, and mm-hmm. it really does make it easier for us to um, collaborate um, and to uh, do things collectively. And um, that's part of the new economic s- system. And so if you don't use those things, you really can't be successful uh, on a high level. You know what I mean? You might right. get small degrees of success, but you won't have that type of success, which is long-lasting and will um, lead towards generational wealth building. Right. Well, we tend to lag behind, fortunately. We tend to even lag behind in, in just the use of technology, um, mm-hmm. you know, We'll buy. It's, it's interesting. We'll buy the latest technology, but even what we use it for tends not to be towards our economic growth. You know, we 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 buy it as a consumer, and we'll use it for social things, and we'll use it, you know, to communicate in that manner. Um, but rarely do we, you know, turn the page with it and, and say, "Oh, wait a minute, I, I bought this, but I can make money from using the technology, and not just give somebody else money for the technology." You know, so I think right. we need to mature, you know, on that level. Um, a lot, you know, we, we, we're way behind, and it's unfortunate because, you know, you have people, uh, you know, in what were considered third world countries, you know, now doing extremely well and, and emerging in the global economy, and here we're supposed to be in a first world country, and we're still lagging behind, you know, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know that we've covered four rules, and I just wanted to say that as I was taking notes and being very quiet as I normally do, um, I I look at rule number one to remember that. And the first word that you said about rule number one is, is abandon. And yeah. then the second rule, embrace. And then the third rule, commit. And the fourth rule, the word uh, collaboration. And so if we just re- to review all that which has been said, which has been a, 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 a some definitely some meat and potatoes here, um, rule number one, abandon your, the financial security, uh, security and seek financial freedom, which is a very big first step. And most times there's two things that, that impede us from doing that, and that is fear and mm-hmm. the second is lack of knowledge. And yeah. so if we can make that first step, um, if we can remove the fear and remove the doubt that we can be successful, you know, uh, we have to feed ourselves with, with knowledge to be able to feel good about us trying to be independent and self-sufficient, I think that we we, we will move in, in, in a much speedier uh, pace 
than we have in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned um, to embrace the system as it currently is, but it's forever changing, and we need to use it to um, to our own advantage. So we have to right. be knowledgeable, like you said, of how the system works now, even though it, it's corrupt and, and the rules change from time to time, we have to stay on top of it so that we can take advantage just like everybody else is taking advantage of the system, mm-hmm. right? And I think rule number three, you talked about commit to be non-committal or non-commitment. And um, I guess that deals with that same um, thing about uh, the, as the economic world is changing and everything is changing, we have to not be so rigid on what we believe is the model for business, but we may have to change and be swift with our changes to stay with the pace and with the time so we can be successful. Um, But that's something I think we might want to further, you know, uh, make clarity because I think many who are not in business, that seems like um, a challenge, uh, maybe a challenge for them to come in with one set of ideas as to how they're going to do business and then, how do I make all these swift and movable changes? How do I keep up with the time? And the last let me just shift it back to people to people who are working then. Um, yes, and, and maybe people understand that. You know, again, mm-hmm. there was a time when you could graduate from high school or graduate from college and work on the same job basically your entire life. And mm-hmm. when you work on a job, what most people expect is to get increases in pay over time which is an interesting thing because, you know, they expect just from surviving, you know, just from longevity to get an increase in pay when the reality is most people become less and less productive over time. And because businesses understand that really over time people become less and less productive because you find ways not to work. Nobody wants to work hard. That's reality. And because you find Mm -hmm. ways to work less and less and you want more money and become less efficient, it's really a, a waste of a business's money to continue to pay you more and more. So what's happening more and more is that people, and we saw it again accelerated with the Great Recession, is that people are being laid off and they're no longer being allowed to work full time. And you're also seeing more and more that people are being hired as independent contractors as opposed to employees. Now, why would a business right. hire people as independent contractors? Again, they don't have to pay into Social Security for you, which saves them actually 15% because they were pay, you were paying 75 from your check, and, and they were paying 75 so it's 15% there. They don't have to pay state taxes. They don't have to pay into the state labor department for uh, unemployment insurance. They don't have to pay. you know, So that they save all this money, um, and they're not paying you when you're not working. And so there has to even be a shift in the way that an employee or what used to be an employee sees him or herself because as an independent contractor, you need to begin to uh, position yourself as the go-to person so that you have steady employment if that's the route you're going to take, which means that, you know, you have to make sure you're up on the latest technology or, or skill set in the industry that you're in, and you have to perform at a high level and market yourself to the next person and the next person and the next person so you have a consistency going from company to company to company and your name gets out there. 
And so it's the same thing. It's, it's that same commitment to non-commitment. You know, you can't be committed to that job, but you got to be committed to, to, to growing your skills and getting your name out there. And as the technology, even for getting your name out there changes, you got to stay on top of that. You know, there was a time when LinkedIn was a, a, a really small thing. Now LinkedIn is, is really like the Facebook of business. You know, it, you know, almost replicates it. It's got, you know, um, a timeline now. It's got um, groups in it now. It's got marketing, advertising. It has all these things. It's grown. And so there was a time when people would just go to, say, monster.com and put their resume up there. But things have changed so dramatically, and you have to be able to stay on top of that because what are people looking for now when they're, when they're seeking help? Are they just going to sites like um, Elance or Odesk or MTurk or, you know, things like that? Are they looking for independent contractors there now, and do you have to shift and put yourself out there there? And so, you know, it, it still has that same element to it. If you're running a business or you're trying to be an employee, you know, if you want consistency of income, then you got to commit to non-commit. You can't be nostalgic about something. You can't be emotionally attached to it. You got to be ready to, to to move and change, and you have to have your, your your ear to the pulse of what's going on. You have to understand that you know we live in an extremely volatile world that's changing rapidly, and you have to be ready to make those changes as the world changes. Stay on top. Well, can you can you hear me? Um, this is very true. Um, I think um, I think the audience might have gotten that, and we might want to understand a little bit more about that power of collective. Um, Give me an a, a idea or a concept of how that collective thought has worked in terms of um, businesses that you have been involved with in terms of real life, real estate transactions, or um, or other businesses. How does that work? Well, real estate in, transactions is, is fairly, yeah, it's fairly easy in real estate transactions. You know, one of the things that I tell people is that you make your money for you to enjoy your life. And so, Meaning that I don't I don't want to commit my my own personal money to a real estate investment and tie my money up and then you know um, it cuts into the lifestyle that I want to live and so every real estate deal that I do basically costs me nothing out of pocket so whether it's getting uh, a private lender or a traditional bank to do the mortgage there are other expenses that are involved. So you always have a down payment, you have closing costs, you have all these extra fees that go into the thousands of dollars. And so for me as an investor, it makes sense for me to open that up to people that I know. And so you'll always know somebody that has $1,000 or $5,000 that is sitting in a bank account that's making basically no interest. And so if I can offer them 10 12%, you know, on their money annually, you know, people will jump at that opportunity. And so you know, anytime I do a real estate transaction, you know, I contact people that I know and I allow them to invest in it. And people say, well, doesn't that cut into my profits? It, it really doesn't. It actually makes me more profitable because when you think like an investor, you have to understand that everything's about return on investment. And so if, let's say it was $50,000 I had to put into a deal, if I put in $50,000, how long would it take me to get a return on my money? Now, here's the other side of it. If I borrowed at $50,000 and I paid 10, 12% on that $50,000, which is a lot. And people might say so 10% is a lot, but any return that I get now is an infinite return because I put in $0 and got a return. 
So $0 to get any return is an infinite return. My return is greater than anybody else who was in the deal by far. They're happy with 10% because that's phenomenal because the bank is paying about one-tenth of 1%. But I get an infinite return on my money. And so as an investor, I'm super successful in terms of return on investment because I didn't put in a dime. You understand? So, you know, in a real estate deal, it's, it's easy to see how, how powerful that is and how it works. You know, and like I said, now, even if you didn't know anybody, they have crowdfunding for real estate. And so you have people who are pooling money the same way I did it on a small scale. They have it, you know, on, in a, on a national scale where, you know, you put the deal in there and people will, you know, fund that, that, um, that opportunity for you. So, you know, it's easy to see it in that regard. Also, um, even when I wrote my book, uh, Recession Driven Riches, what I did was, you know, I used mind sharing. So mind sharing is, is getting the ideas of a whole bunch of people and getting feedback from a whole bunch of people. When I originally wrote the book, you know, I wrote the book in a way that it should be written. And then what I did was I pulled a, a group of, of people who basically were the demographic for who I was targeting the book for, and I allowed them to read it and give me feedback, you know. And they gave me valuable feedback, which made me actually change the book. So the book began to, you know, it was written for them. They have now um, mind-sharing groups of like Medium, which is uh, medium.com, which is for writers, where instead of you putting together your own group, now you have a, a pool of, of hundreds of thousands of people who can review your book and give you feedback and even give you suggestions for things to put in the book. So, you know, when we look at things like that, that is so powerful to have the feedback of people in your demographic but have thousands of people look at it, critique it, give you suggestions, even, you know, uh, like they do like a Wikipedia thing. They'll say, well, you should put this in the book. And it still is your intellectual property. You know, so, you know, there, was, there are so many different ways now. When I used to do it the hard way, where you can do it the easy way. You know, I'm part of a, uh, a mastermind group, you know, which is powerful. But they have online mastermind groups where because of technology, you can collaborate with, with people from all over the world. There's, I got an email the other day from um, it was just a, uh, this, a group of CEOs, just all CEOs and how they support each other you know, it gave me an invitation to be a part of that. That's something powerful to get, you know, access to the best minds of people running top companies around the world. You know, it's just so powerful to be able to use that. And I think, you know, we're very reticent as a people. And you mentioned the earlier part of it is that, you know, historic lack of trust and, and you know, that fear that people are going to steal from us. But we, we're, we're denying ourselves the benefit of what people can contribute to us and what people can do to advance what we're doing. I'm checking in to make sure I'm heard. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> Am I coming in loud and clear, Haru? I hear you. Awesome. I think this is a good time for us just to pause, recap, and um, go to a commercial break and then come back and jump into rule number six. But um, you, you, James highlighted the key words in one through five, abandon, embrace, commit, collaborate, and, and the power of, of collective thought. Um, Haru, how does somebody find a mastermind group? Well, a mastermind group, I think, um, you, you know, you can go online and, and go on, you can go on Quora and ask if there are a mastermind group in this area. You can go on meetup.com. You know, that still exists. You can find a mastermind group probably on LinkedIn. You'll find a, a great mastermind group. Um, you, you can even find a group on Facebook. You'd be surprised. You know, so social media allows for that. 
you know, there, there are a lot of different resources for that, but if you can find one locally, um, and, and the good thing about a mastermind, you can start a mastermind group and put it, put out mm-hmm. invitations, but you, you, what you want though is a variety. You don't want a bunch of people in your industry because if it's just people in your industry, the best you'll get is, is, is the best that's in your industry. And again, a lot of the, the best ideas are pulled from other industries and drawn into to, to your industry. Mm-hmm. And so you, you want a, a diverse group of people who are on different levels, you want different ages. You know, one of the things that's important in the mastermind group that I have is that I, it was important for me to bring in some young people uh, who are tech, tech savvy, you know, and, and who, who grew up on the computer and know about all these apps and things like that because, you know, that t- I didn't grow up with that. And so I struggle with staying on top of it, and, and it's a lot easier for them to do. So I also want people who are older and wiser and have more experience than me. So you want a, a good uh, variety and a good mix of people. And, you know, you'd be surprised how quickly you can actually put it together. You really don't want to go too fast because you really want to screen people and make sure that everybody is supportive, you know, open and accountable, you know, so that that's really important. I like the concept of the mastermind groups. When we come back from our brief break, we're going to talk about the value between or or the difference between price and value. Stay tuned. The call-in number is 213-943-3618. You can drop a question in the blog talk chat room. You can jump on Facebook. Go to the Keys 107 and type your question or your message, or you can send it to us by suggestions at the Keys 107 network.com. I'm Rafika, your host, and my co-host, Brother James, is here, and we will join Haru in a second. The Keys 107 will be right back. For fashions that bring out the best in you, go to moon107.com. That's M-A-U-N-107.com. We feature organic hair and skin products, pink Himalayan sea salt, women's tunic tops, children's books, jewelry, art, and organite. Visit us on the web at moon107.com. M-A-U-N-107.com. Rafika Consultants and Services Technology Trainers. Do you need help making your computer or smartphone work for you? Whether it's managing your email, navigating Windows 8, working with MS Office, creating videos for YouTube, or any other technology need, our friendly and expert trainers are ready to help you get it right. We also provide public relations and web design project management. For more information, contact us at www.rafikacs.com or on Facebook at Rafika Consultants and Services. The Fluff presents the alphabet is available on Amazon.com and on Kindle. So get your copy today. For more information, go to www.thefluffamily.com. Now, 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 back to the keys. 107 with your host, Rafika and Brother Jay. And we are here. We're live. We're discussing the 10 
indispensable rules for creating wealth in the new economy. Earlier in the show, Haroon Niket broke down just what he means by the new economy, and it just all makes sense. Um, He's telling us that we've got to abandon the concept of financial freedom. The old script, good education, work hard, get a pension, retire, you're good. Well, wash wash it down the drain. He also stresses And he's talked about this in other shows. All those shows are archived, by the way. Be receptive and open to change. Nothing today stays the same, and and you can't look 10 years down the line and stay in the same position that you're in today. So I am ready, if you are ready, uh, listening audience, to go right into rule number six, where Haru's going to talk about the difference between price and value. Actually, actually we skipped number five. Um, we did? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Let's go back to five. <laughs> yeah. Number five is take advantage of the vast amount of information available to do your due diligence. You know, there was right. a time where where we had to rely on the advice of a professional um, to, to tell us what was good. So we relied on you know, a real estate broker, or we relied on, you know, a stock broker, or we relied, you know, we were relying on, on these people who didn't necessarily have our best interests, um, you know, at heart. Um, and so now, you know, you have the ability to listen to what they say, but also cross-reference because there's so much information available. So, you know, one of the, the great resources that, that I use in terms of understanding um, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, you know, things like that is Morningstar.com. You know, it's an invaluable resource. It's free. Um, they do have a paid subscription version, but the free version is just, you know, so robust and, and powerful and allow you to really understand the direction of the market and what's going on. Um, Bloomberg.com is a, is a phenomenal, you know, site in, in, to understand, again, what's going on in the in the stock market. Um, if you're in the real estate, PropertyShark.com is a, is a valuable, invaluable resource. If you're really talking about being an investor, I'm not talking about just being a home buyer, but being an investor, you know, it's, it's important to have something like that. And if you're an entrepreneur, entrepreneur.org, you know, is a phenomenal site too. So, you know, you have all these resources that will allow you to understand, you know, the, the price of things, the changes in the price of things, the buying patterns. Um, you have the ability to uh, listen to what people are saying in terms of how they rate different things, which is important to get – feedback of people who have done things, you know, that, that's so powerful to me to, you know, go on a site and look at the, the peer reviews. You know, people are telling you, I've done this, and, you know, it really doesn't work out the way they say, or I had difficult doing this, difficulty doing this or that. So it's important that we take advantage of, of the information. One of the, the problems is the vast amount of information. You know, it's it's hard to really discern what is good information, what is bad information. You know, there's a lot of fluff out there, and there's a lot of stuff that's slandered a certain way. So it's really important to to be able to figure out, you know, good sources of information that are somewhat unbiased. And, again, the reason I like Morningstar is because they don't sell you anything. You know, they're just an information resource. Um, You know, entrepreneur.org is a nonprofit. You know, they don't sell you anything. It's just a resource. And Property Shark, the same thing. They don't sell real estate on Property Shark. It's just a resource. So, you know, when you look for things that their whole job is to to be able to present you with great information and the reason they profit is because they do provide good information, you know, those are the types of sources that you really want to stick with. 
So, you know, again, it's important, you know, not to just listen to the advice of others. And that's important, too. You should listen. However, there's so much free information available, so much low-cost information available. You know, there's no excuse for you not making, you know, really good decisions for yourself. So rule number six, which is important, (laughs) is to understand the difference between price and value. And the simplest way I can put this is price is what you pay and value is what you get. And sometimes Mm -hmm. we don't understand the difference and we make poor financial decisions as a result of that. So, you know, one of the easiest examples, you know, I can, I guess I can give is when you go to buy a car. Most people don't realize that the most a car depreciates is in the first two years. And so if the greatest depreciation is in the first two years, why would you buy a new car when you can let somebody else get the depreciation and then you get the value from it? So if you buy a car that's two years old, it still looks new, it still smells new, it has very little sign of wear and tear, and the warranties are still in effect. So if you get all the benefits of a new car and let somebody else pay for the depreciation, then you're getting some value. But if we transfer that now into um, you know, something bigger in terms of wealth development, when you buy a piece of property, oftentimes, you know, some of my students who are, are really fresh in the game, they run to buy the, the least expensive property they can find and think that that's a good deal, and it's not necessarily a good deal. It's not about the price that you pay for something. It's the value that you get. So if we look at New York City, for instance, and we look at Brooklyn in, in particular, Brooklyn has been designated the most expensive city in America to live in. And mm. primarily because of the, the price of real estate and, and how the prices are skyrocketing. And so we have to understand, well, where's the value? Because all of Brooklyn isn't equal. And I think people don't really understand that because you have people now running to, to Brooklyn and buying anywhere thinking that they're going to get value. And I'll give you an example. Um, there's, there was a, a huge run on brownstones in, in Brooklyn. And anybody who knows Brooklyn it started in Fort Greene, then it went to Clinton Hills, then it went to Bed-Stuy, um, uh, Prospect Heights, Crown Heights, um, into Ocean Hill. You know, no, that's primarily – and Park Slope had been saturated years ago. But those are the areas that have brownstones in Brooklyn. And the reason those things went first is because that's where the value is in, in real estate. And if we understand value – people who are buying it understand that these properties were built over 100 years ago by artisans who don't exist today, and they created basically works of art, like fine artists that don't exist today. And so the cost to replicate something like that today would be astronomical. And so there's long-term economic value in them. As they become more and more scarce, the value will increase over time. Now, just let me just flip to the other parts of Brooklyn, say Brownsville in East New York, where during the 80s, many of the old tenement buildings were torn down, and they brought these houses on trucks called Nehemiah houses, and they just mm. kind of threw them up, you know. And really, when they first put them out there, it was sold between thirty and sixty thousand dollars. And now, you know, um, they they didn't really maintain a great amount of value, but people are trying to sell them for three hundred thousand dollars or more, and they're not selling, and they don't understand why. And, and the reason is, even though the price is low, because the brownstones in Brooklyn are now a million plus, you can't buy a brownstone for less than a million dollars in any condition. And I'm talking about in the worst condition now, you're talking about a million dollars for a brownstone in Brooklyn, and a Nehemiah home won't sell for $300,000 in Brooklyn. Um, 
So we got to understand, even when you purchase, when you purchase, even if the price is more, you know, if you're buying the value in it, then that value will hold itself over time and usually increase as opposed to decrease. So, you know, a Nehemiah home that was bought for $60,000, even though it's $300,000, it's pretty much the equivalent, you know, paying $30,000 at that time. So, you know, we we need to begin to understand where value is at. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's important. You know, we got to look at, and if we look again at real estate here, limestones, brownstones, if we look at even other places, waterfront. Waterfront property at a time was unavailable and was mostly industrial because during the industrial age, you needed water in order to run a business and to, and to do manufacturing, whether it was to ship your products out or water actually to, to use the steam engines for things. And so most waterfront areas at a time were, you know, industrial areas, and now those industries are gone. So what happened? Now people say, wow, it's a beautiful thing to live by the water. So a lot of those old factories, so we look at, again, in Brooklyn, Red Hook, and areas like that, the, the value in Williamsburg, same thing, is by water. You know, those property values are skyrocketing because the amount of area by the coast is limited. So even areas that in Queens, like Far Rockaway, that were once, you know, nobody wanted to live there, they're building communities by the beach, and the property values are skyrocketing. So areas by green areas, by parks like Prospect Park or Central Park in, in, here in New York, um, areas by waterfronts, areas by business districts, areas um, that have limestone and, limestones and brownstones. So even in, like in Baltimore, Baltimore is, is, is a rough area, but they have beautiful brownstones there. They're, those brownstones will come back. You know, even wow. I, I took a trip out to, to Detroit, um, and, you know, that was – Detroit was devastated. They had to declare bankruptcy and everything. But I took a trip out there in October, and I was, I was amazed, you know, the downtown area – is building up fast, and it's interesting. They have a, a gentrification there too, but it's different. Well, People are living there but working outside of Detroit, but they're buying up yes. the properties because there's huge properties there. They're buying them up very yes. cheap because they have value well, and they understand the long-term value. And as the economy there recovers, they got it cheap, and then you know they have this, this um, you know beautiful property for the long term. And so once we begin to understand Haru, that, we'll make better choices. Brother Haru, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. I just want to add, I just, well, we, Rafiki and I just came back from Detroit a couple of days ago, and we did get an opportunity to go through the community. But one of the things that we, uh, to chime into what you're saying, seven years ago, you and I could buy a three to four bedroom home in Detroit for $7,000 less than mm-hmm. what you pay for a car. Absolutely. Now th- that's going for $30,000. It's going right. for $30,000. So there's a trend developing, and I know you're going to talk about trends, but the the reality is you talk about value. The average medium home in America is worth the, uh, about $290,000. Well, at some point in time, that economy is going to level out and get to its get back in order with things. And that same home that you purchased seven years ago for seven thousand dollars is going to be worth two hundred and thirty, two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So the value in that home um, and will increase. So your wealth building 
uh, opportunity is there. It's when you have that great disparity and that value and the price, that's when you can actually build wealth. So right. that's what they did in in New York, in Brooklyn, in yep. Harlem. They let the value yep. go down, yep. and then they bought low, and then guess yep. what? Now you can't even buy them now. Same homes right. you you got for the dollars now is a million dollars. It's incredible. Right. We have to use that right. same concept and get our communities back. I, I'm glad Absolutely. you mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So value so, and um, price. Yes. Which which kind of goes into rule number seven. Um, determine the difference between long term economic value and short term trends. And mm. you know, again, so that if we go back to the the limestones and brownstones. You know, those things have long-term economic value. There was a, there's a group, um, most people don't even realize what happened. There's a group from Australia that came into Brooklyn at the tail end of the Great Recession and actually changed the market. Um, it's a group called the Dixon Group. And they came into Brooklyn, and they bought up pretty much as many brownstones as they could in, Brook, in, Brown, in uh, Bed-Stuy particularly, and they have a 10-year strategy. They're going to hold them for 10 years, and then they're going to sell them. And what they're doing now mm. is that they just renovated them and they're renting them out for the entire brownstones for ridiculous amounts of money. Um, you know, it, I, I saw them the other day, I think it was like $12,000 a month, you know, they're renting a brownstone for. Um, and so, you know, we have to understand that some things are, are, are short-term trends and some things have long-term value. And so when, you know, there's a big push now uh, to move to East New York, and we have to understand where, where that came from. You know, when we look at gentrification in, in New York, you know, you had these artists that came in first, you know, they call them the hipsters, who came in into the, you know, the black communities first, and they started buying, I mean, not buying, excuse me, they started renting there, you know, inexpensively. And then you had, you know, the tech industry came to New York, and you have an influx of Europeans from Europe who are taking those high-tech jobs and getting paid, you know, exorbitant amounts of, of money, and they're buying in, those, buying in those same areas all cash. So it's a real market, and that's going to hold the value. And what it did, though, it, it made it too expensive for the hipsters to still live there. They couldn't afford the rents, so now they're looking for a new place to live. And East New York is one of the um, most underdeveloped but large areas um, left. But if you look historically at East New York, it's always been a haven for people of, um, uh, you know, low economics. So they'll move there now, but when the next best thing comes, they'll be gone again. And so you have to really be careful about, you know, because a lot of people, I'm going to buy in East New York now because it's the last place I can buy or afford to buy. And you have to be careful. The infrastructure has never been there, you know, when we look at um you have an above-ground train station as opposed to underground train station. That says something about a neighborhood. Um, there's no banks. I think there's like one bank in East New York, and it's on the fringe of East New York all the way on Atlantic Avenue. There's no banks in East New York. That's a problem. You know, they don't have the economic infrastructure. They don't have the physical infrastructure. It, it wasn't designed for that. It was built at the end. Most of it was built at the end of World War II. Prior to that, it was farmland, and it was built for, uh, low-income um, Italians, Irish, and Jews returning from World War II. And so you don't have brownstones, limestones, um, you know, townhouses, large townhouses. You don't have 
green parks, you don't have banks, you don't have all these things that would make a community hold its value over the long term. So unless there's a a plan to be able to to put that in now, that's a short-term trend. And it's not going to hold the same value as, say, Bed-Stuy or Fort Greene or Clinton Hills. And so we have to be careful, you know, even though I'm not saying there's not money to be made there, but we have to understand the difference between, you know, making money in the short term, so not necessarily making a 30-year commitment on a mortgage as opposed to a long-term economic, you know, thing where you might make a commitment to stay there 10 years. And so, you know, it's very difficult sometimes to see when you see a wave of people moving in a direction and you want to capitalize on it, you got to understand you're going to put the the minimum amount you, you have to into that in order to profit because you understand that it's not a long-term commitment as opposed to someplace else. So you have to, you have to really look around for those stable economic businesses or uh, such as banks. You said that in some, in that particular neighborhood you were talking about, there, there are no banks in the neighborhood. So you might see a lot of uh, available property, like for example, in Detroit. And as, um, when you was talking, I was remembering, reflecting back on our tour, that we didn't see a lot of banks in, in those areas um, right. in Detroit. Well, in Detroit, you don't see a lot of anything except downtown, which is interesting. <laughs> yeah. Right? But if you look downtown, they, they built a hospital. Like, that's one of the things you have to look for. Like, if you go to a neighborhood and there's no hospital, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, if you go to a neighborhood and there's no bank, that's a problem. But downtown Detroit, all that stuff is being built up. But if you go out to the, you know, um, you know, other parts of Detroit, there's still no electricity in some of those areas, you know. Um, and so, again, even in buying in Detroit, you shouldn't buy just anywhere in Detroit, by the way, because the closer you are to downtown, the faster that area is going to be developed, and that will be, the, the, like, the ground zero, and it will spread out from there as opposed to going, you know, where there's still some places you can buy a, pro- a property for $1,000 in Detroit. Right. But you, you know, know what? Uh, I think what we have to look at is the fact that all these things are by design. If we are in tune with the urban planners, those yes. who are shaping the community, we will yes. know what's going down the line. Now, you talked about Detroit, but it's happening here in, in New York as well as um, Baltimore and all major cities. In Detroit, yes. $5 billion of construction is going on in, uh, right now as we speak. And and that's all in in a city or the downtown area. But outside of that area, you know, uh, there's a lot of land. I think you could probably put the population of New York City, L.A., and another city in Detroit because the land they, it's it's a massive landmass, um, mm-hmm. and it's um, you figure it's only nine hundred thousand. Uh, excuse me, 900 million people, whatever it is. It's not as much as New York City. It's not as much as anywhere. Not even close. But I'm going to say, if we don't tap into the urban planners, we won't have a clue as to where we need to purchase our property because we'll be outside of the thinking. They already know what's going on. So um, that's a, a, a key to us learning where we should invest our money. All right. You kind so, of gave away what I, I was kind of going to talk about that in rule number nine. But oh <laughs> wow! That up. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that, that was okay. part of one of my rules. That, you know, we have to really get in touch with that. But you know, that I'm glad you brought that up. I'll just you know expand on a little bit when I get to rule number mm-hmm. nine. Okay. All right, so rule number 
Number eight, we have to mm-hmm. guard against fragility and avoid excess exposure to risk. Now, you know, people tend not to look at how fragile they are. They tend to look at things that happen in, in the economy, and then we build ourselves based on past events. You know, so for instance, um, you know the the economy, the housing market collapsed. You know, in in two thousand eight. And so people are reacting to that now and doing things now based on, on what happened before. And the the danger in that is that just like you didn't predict that was going to happen, you can't predict what the next thing is going to be. And so instead of, um, you know, kind of fortifying yourself against a, a past event, you need to fortify yourself in general for anything that can happen. You want to put yourself in a position to be robust. And so when I say fragile, what are the things that, that can make you fragile? When you're fragile, the slightest movements in the market or the slightest disruptions in, in things can destroy you. And there are a lot of examples of being fragile. Um, you can uh, over-leverage yourself with debt and be fragile because if there's a shift in the market and you can't pay it off, it can destroy you. You can be, have a limited amount of cash flow and then things happen and you don't have enough. You can have assets and not enough cash to cover yourself and still be destroyed. Um, you can make yourself vulnerable by not being covered with the proper amount of insurance. You can be make yourself vulnerable by not having an emergency fund and suddenly you lost your source of income. You can be vulnerable by not having a retirement strategy and years of passing and suddenly you find yourself at an age where you know you want to retire but you don't have it. Um, you can make yourself vulnerable by not having health coverage and get get a, a catastrophic injury or a disease. So, you know, you have to really look at your own situation and say, where am I vulnerable where something not even great could really just destroy me? And so you begin to make yourself robust as opposed to trying to plan for something that happened before. You put make yourself so strong that it doesn't matter what happens in the market, yet it doesn't matter what happens in the outside world that you're already prepared for everything. So to guard against fragility is really to make yourself strong or robust enough that it doesn't matter what happens instead of, you know, planning for past events or trying to anticipate, you know, some new events. Um, and, you know, you really have to avoid certain risks and, and really understand, you know, with the amount of information, again, that we have, you'll understand the potential pitfalls that could happen in everything that you do. And so you want to be able to take care of that ahead of time. You want to avoid lawsuits. If you have a piece of property, fix the steps now. You don't wait till somebody falls. Um, mm. If you're in poor health, Get yourself healthy now. You don't wait until, you know, that exacerbates and then you become so sick that, you know, it's unrecoverable. Um, if you've got a 401K and you see what's happening in the stock market now, hmm, you might want to cut your losses and put that money someplace else before it's gone completely, you know. Um, and, you know, just things like that. We have to really reevaluate everything that we did and everything that we, we're doing and say, you know, is there too much risk involved in this or does this make me fragile? to a point where any shift is going to completely destroy me. Don't put yourself out there to be destroyed like that. All right. Okay. So, so rule number eight, guard against uh, for, uh, for, uh, from being fragile and avoid excess. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. So rule number nine is understanding time and timing are critical. Mm. So, you know, we kind of talked about it. You know, there's a time for everything, you know, and unfortunately what most people do is wait until it's too late and try to cash in on what they think the opportunity is, but the opportunity has already passed. 
So if real estate prices are skyrocketing in, in many parts of Brooklyn, now is not the time to buy. Somebody asked me the other day, um, you know, what are you doing in real estate? Are you buying? No, I'm selling. I'm unloading properties now because there are properties that I, I bought pre-recession for three in the 300000 and I bought one in the 600000 and people are offering me over a million dollars for those properties now. So it's not to mm. me, it's not the time to buy. It's the time to sell if you have real estate. Um, right. There are other ways to cash in. So we have to also look at, okay, if Brooklyn is the most expensive place to live and we're seeing all this, these changes in the demographics, then how do we take advantage of the changes in the demographics? Um, one thing that happened around, basically around the corner from where I live, because my neighborhood is changing as well, um, they opened up an Internet cafe. A, a, black, a black family opened up an Internet cafe with muffins and, you know, uh, fancy coffees and things like that to cater to the, the changing demographic. So if you're not going to be able to stop the change, then you might as well cash in on the change. Right. You might as well, you know, you know, you know what I mean? So they're making money from the changing demographics but it's all about mm-hmm. timing, you know? So I had somebody contact me the other day and said, uh, we need to get together and find a way to buy back the brownstones. No, it's too late to buy back the brownstone. <laughs> if you buy back now, you're going to pay top dollar for it. It doesn't yeah. make sense to buy them back. You sold them in the first place. And now you want to buy them back. You sold them cheap and you want to buy them back expensive. That doesn't make sense. You know, so, one of the things that we have to understand is anything we, we, we get into, we have to figure out how long should I hold this thing and what's my exit strategy, you know? Mm, so, from the yeah, very beginning. From the very beginning. How long am I going to hold this? What's my exit strategy, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, because that, that's important. If you don't have an exit strategy, then your timing usually is off. And your exit right. strategy could be based on, on um, hitting a certain level of the market change. So, Okay, now property's worth a million dollars, and I bought it for three hundred thousand. That's a such and such return. Now it's time to sell. I don't care if it continues to go to two million dollars. I'm going to mm-hmm. sell it because you can't really predict when it's going to change again necessarily. So my thing was, okay, I paid three hundred thousand. When it goes to a million, it's time to sell. It might right. go to a million and a half, but I'm not going to wait. You know, um, same thing. I have. I had a few people contact me and recently. Whoa, uh, brother, are you buying gold now? No, I'm not buying gold now. Time for buying gold is long past. Gold's been on a steady decline for the last four years. Like, why would I buy gold now? You know, um, the time for buying gold was, and when I did buy gold, actually, I bought gold in 2004 when it was $400 an ounce. You know, so the Mm -hmm. time for me is not to, now it might be time for me to sell my gold. Well, actually, it's not when the economy gets really bad again and the price goes back up. It'll be time for me to sell it. But I'm not buying anything right now. It doesn't make sense when, it's, mm. when you're going to buy it and it's steadily declining. You've got to wait till it hits bottom again when the economy is bad because it, it's an right. inverse relationship between gold and, right. and the economy. So, you know, timing that, is important. So, I'm sorry. No, I was yeah. going to say that is exactly right. You, you, you have to have a, go in with the exit strategy, but you have to know when to go in. You have to know when yes. to begin to get it to the market, and that's that's the timing right there. You go yes. in when the when when everything is low, and you sell right. you sell when everything is high, and we have to and see that, that in real estate or what you're market. saying. Yeah, so that goes back to what you were saying about um, being involved with city planning, and and being politically active. You know, you you can't mm-hmm. separate economics from politics. You know, unfortunately, they, they go hand in hand. And so, you know, until we become politically active, we'll always find out after the fact, mm. you know. Um, well, well, you know, so well, politics protects our economy. 
So if yeah. you're going to go build wealth, you're going to have to have the political figures in place to protect your wealth. Absolutely. They're so the lawmakers. This is, it goes hand in hand. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Mm. And so, but it starts on something as small as being part of the community board. So you know what's coming. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's, right. it's something simple if you're here in New York City going to uh, um, NYC.gov and going slash uh, city planning, and it'll tell you what the plans are for the next decade. You know, mm-hmm. so it, it's not even, again, we have so much access to information, you know, we just have to take advantage of it. And so, you know, you have to show up for your precinct council meetings. You have to go to community board meetings. You have to know who your your, your local representative is. You have to know who your, your city council is. You have to know who all these people are and what they do and what they can do for you and take advantage mm-hmm. of that. You mm. know, that's that's so, so important. When you talk about the time, um, understanding time and timing in and how critical that is, that also applies to the job. People yes. who have been on their job for a little while, you know, like you said, as you get older, your product, your productivity decreases, but you expect increases in salary, but the timing of that may not be um, accurate <laughs> as far as your reality right. is. <laughs> right. Well, I and think we hit on target. No, I think we hit on a lot of critical points. And I know that we're kind of moving towards that last point um, yeah. um, in terms of you wanted to make is number 10. And I think that puts the icing on the cake here. Yes. And it goes back to time, kind of goes into timing. And rule number mm-hmm. 10 is know when to pull the plug and walk away. Mm. You know, one of, one of the biggest mistakes people make is not knowing, you know, when to, to you know, abandon certain things and, you know, my philosophy in this economy is fail fast, meaning, you know, um, you don't wait until you've lost everything and you walk away with regrets. Um, you'll know because you have the ability to, to um, get feedback from your demographics, because you have the ability to understand quickly whether or not something is going to be profitable, if it's, if it's not taking off in the beginning, let it go. Mm-hmm. And once it's rolling and you start seeing signs of decline, don't wait until it declines completely. Let it go. You know, uh, when something no longer serves your interest, when it becomes unprofitable, when it's consuming too much time, when it's consuming too much energy, when it's consuming too many of your resources, when it becomes unhealthy physically or emotionally, you got to pull mm-hmm. the plug and walk away. Absolutely. And, you know, unfortunately, that's something that most people just don't do. They just hang on far too long and let that thing just consume them and everything that they have. Wow. That's that Haru, I think that is the, the that is the one point that touches on everything. It yeah. it explains why and when we are in business and why it's not successful, but there's always that, that little little thing in the back of your mind that says, Give it another chance, you know, don't stop now. <laughs> um right. You know, the, the, the market's going to change. It's going to turn over. Right. Hang in there. So when you're fighting those, those, those like, you know, uh, whispering bat- battles in your head, you have to just know, like you said, when to just say, and, and the evidence is clear. It's just so clear. You know when you're not making any money. You know when you're, right. not, when you're losing sleep. You know when you're getting headaches, when you're getting circles under your eyes. Um, maybe it's time to just stop at that point. Just let yeah. it go. Well, I believe we've covered just about all of the 10 rules, and um, 
as we recap 6 through 12, the rule number, oh, excuse me, six, 5 through 12, because I think we recapped 1 through 4, but rule number 5, we say take advantage of the vast amount of information and do your due diligence. Rule number 6, we understand the difference between price and value, which is critical. Um, rule number 7, determine the difference between long-term economic value and short-term trends, and I think I wanted to say I wanted to say something back then. You talk. I was thinking there's two models when you go into like real estate. You buy, you fix, and you sell, which is short-term, right? Or you buy, you right. fix, and you hold, which is rental, yes. and that's long-term. Yes. So you know we have to know going in what you want to do, and you have to understand the economic climate, yes. um, and the trends. Uh, rule number eight. Um, did I say seven yet? Difference between long-term and economic, well, we said that. Rule number eight, guard against uh, fragility and avoid excess exposure to risk. And rule number nine, understanding time and timing are critical. Um, rule number ten, know when to pull the plug and walk away. Wow. That's enough for us to really get into. So if anybody is really looking for to take advantage, study these 10 points, implement them, and you will see a vast difference in the way you conduct business and do business. Well, I want to uh, remind our listening audience that all of the shows on the Keys 107 are archived. You can listen to the archive via iTunes. You can listen to the archives via the Keys107network.com, our website, or you can listen in via blogtalkradio.com slash thekeys107. We always post the archive link on our Facebook page, The Keys 107. We've got a group and we've got a page. And you are more than welcome to come in, join either one of the groups or, or like the page and, and continuously get information. One of the... Um, one of the, the gems that Haru always leaves us with, besides um, some great make sense, easy-to-follow strategies, are all those wonderful web res uh, Internet resources, such as Property Shark and Entrepreneur.org and Morningstar and NYC.gov slash city planning. When you listen to our archive shows, just get your pen and paper because you're going to get such a wealth of information. And just to let you know that the next show with Haru for the month of March is scheduled for March 17th at 8.30 p.m. And, Haru, do you have any closing words that you want to leave our listeners with? Well, I just want people to, to make sure that they don't take uh, the information and just sit on it. You know, yeah. that they begin to apply it every, every every single day with everything that they're trying to do in terms of, you know, growing their wealth because it's just so critical um, that you start now because, again, the world is moving so fast, the rules might just change again. Yes, mm. you're right. Um, mm. it's, you know, action, action. You have to take action. And, and, these, and you know, Haru, one of the things that I really, really admire about your approach to this is it's so easy to do what you're saying. And I know that the biggest thing is like getting off the couch to exercise, you know, because the couch is so comfy. But <laughs> the, <laughs> these rules, they're, they're not very difficult, you know. Um, it just makes sense, easy to follow strategies. Mm. 
Well, we want to thank all the listening audience at this time for, you know, participating, you know, actively listening to what we've been um, um, exposing you to in terms of business, wealth, and, and knowledge. And um, we especially want to thank Brother Haru for preparing such a wealth of information to give to us so that we can make our lives better and make our family lives better and hopefully um, take it to a level where we can start uh, generating uh, generational wealth. So, uh, Haru, thank you once again for coming on board with the keys and uh, sharing your, your vast amount of knowledge. All right. So it is that well, hour. James, I always want to remind people that they can uh, communicate with us. They can share their ideas, their thoughts. They can talk about some show topics that they're interested in hearing um, by by uh, emailing us at suggestions at thekeys107network.com. We will get back to you within 24 hours, and we're just so excited. We, we're building, we're growing, and we're sticking to our model opening doors to endless possibilities in the pursuit of love, peace, and happiness. And um, James, what would you like to close out with today? Oh, boy. I'll be honest with you. I wanted to hear some hip-hop, but I don't know if we have uh, anything <laughs> appropriate. <laughs> no, I, we don't have hip-hop. I, I'll have right to work now. on that, okay? <laughs> no, we don't. It's, I'm fine with, with anything that you play. I, I know that our playlist it's a little limited, but um, um, bless us with something to close us out with, Rafika. Good enough. I'll do that. And once again, thank you for listening. Hey, this is MYBY, and you are tuned into the Keys 107 Network on Blog Talk Radio, opening doors to endless possibilities. I think, uh, James, we're going to close with some Ernie Ernie J. Smith singing "When mm-hmm. I Think All of right. South Africa." He kicks that guitar.
Wherever 